You want success, but are you right? Not a plan. Get so high, I don't even wanna land. Please excuse me, do you know who I am? I'm the man. I'm the man. Please excuse me, do you know who I am? I'm the man. Uh. Yeah. Ooh. Uh. I do this bad thing for my family. Uh. So I gotta keep my sanity. Uh. It gets serious if you play with me. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dr. Odell Glenn of the OG Inspiration Show, bringing you empowerment, encouragement, and enlightenment. Hoping that you had an awesome week on last week, and we are back again for a new episode. And so the purpose of the OG Inspiration Show is to inspire, motivate, empower, enrich the lives of others through education, career planning, from my own experiences, nonprofit organizations, various authors faith-based communities, coaches, entrepreneurs, professionals, and small business owners. Well, the purpose of life is to live it, to taste experience, to turn obstacles into opportunity to the utmost and to reach out eagerly and without fear for newer and richer experiences. For we have an innovative God and he is constantly challenging us to reflect his glory, to utilize the characteristics he has given each of us to move forward towards righteousness. And we must often be innovative in that task. And so this morning, guys, we have two authors, a husband and a wife. Dr. Randy Taylor and James Taylor, they've written a book for The Imperfect Storm, Racism and a Pandemic Collide in America. And we're going to talk about that book. But before we do, I just want to open up with a small word of prayer. God, we thank you for an opportunity to express ourselves and our thoughts and uniquenesses and differences. Now, God, we ask that you would bless this show, that someone would be blessed and empowered and in touch to open themselves up to discussing differences. And God, we thank you for this opportunity and the authors, and we ask that someone out in radio and podcast land will be blessed and be changed and to be inspired to start grassroots efforts to bring about change, not only in our society, but through our educational system and other areas that we may be involved in. We thank you, amen and amen. And so before we start, as I do always, I like to start off with some quotes and we have some quotes related around education and injusticism. And one of them is by Nelson Mandela. Mm -hmm. He says, no one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate. And if they learn to hate, they can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposite. So that is extremely empowering. We are not born to hate. We are taught to love. We can be taught to love. Love, and it comes more naturally than its opposite. Another quote is by Audrey Lord, and she says, It is not our differences that divide us, it is our inability to recognize, accept, and celebrate those differences. Guys, it's so important to be unique and be different so that you bring your empowerment to the world. So it's important to celebrate those differences. Muhammad Ali said, hating people because of their color is wrong, and it doesn't matter which color does the hating, it's just plain wrong. <laughs> Believe that right there. No matter what your color is, <laughs> black, brown, yellow, purple, pink, whatever it is, is wrong, and there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Harriet Tubman said, every great dream brings with a dreamer. Always remember, you have within you the strength, the patience, and the passion to reach for the stars to change the world. So guys, I want you to continue to dream and to think about all the things that you can do to bring about change. And as Harriet Tubman says, every dream begins with you being the dreamer. Remember, you have the strength, the patience, the passion to reach for the stars. The change. It's within you. So reach within you and bring that out. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. said, a man's mind stretched by new ideas may never return to its original dimension. When you begin to stretch yourself and move forward, you'll find that you can never go back. It's almost like a saying that says, once you taste the taste of caviar, you can't go back to tuna fish. You have to stretch <laughs> your mind to go forward to the things so that you can think of things in other ways. And the last quote is by Dr. Martin Luther King. 
King Jr. He said, the function of education is to teach one to think intensively and to think critically. Intelligence plus character, that is the goal of true education. And that is exactly around the theme of our authors here this morning. As I mentioned, Dr. Wendy Taylor and Dr. James Taylor have written a book called The Perfect Storm, Racism and a Pandemic Collide in America. And this is written in the midst of the COVID-19 as well as the George Floyd racism blend. And before we begin, I want to read their bios. We're going to start off with Dr. Wendy W. Taylor. She holds a doctorate in educational leadership and management from Capella University, an EDS in educational administration from the University of West Georgia, an MED from South Carolina State, and a BA from the University of South Carolina. She has worked in public education for 23 years, having served as a counselor, assistant principal, principal, and director. She is a consultant with the Georgia Leadership Institute for School Improvement and CEO of Taylor and Taylor Education Consultants, LLC, a company she co-owns with her husband, Dr. James A. Taylor. Dr. James A. Taylor has worked in public education for more than 40 years, having served as a teacher, high school principal, executive director, and associate superintendent. He earned a doctoral degree from the University of South Carolina in 1978 and completed additional postgraduate work at Auburn University and the University of North Carolina. He is also an author of From Unequal to Unwanted Reform Needed to Improve K-12 Public and higher education. He is a consultant with Taylor and Taylor Education Consultants, LLC, a company he owns with his wife, Dr. Wendy W. Taylor. After this short commercial break, we are pleased and blessed to have the authors of The Imperfect Storm, Racism, and a Pandemic Collide in America with Dr. Taylor's Wendy and James Taylor. Did you know that each of us consumes more air each day than anything else in the world? We breathe in over 3,000 gallons of air every day. According to the Environmental Protection Agency, indoor air levels of many pollutants may be two to five times and sometimes more than 100 times higher than outdoor levels. Whether or not you suffer from allergies or not, there is something you can do about it. Introducing the Volera Air and Surface Pro Plus, which combines five nature-based processes into one unique, proven, active technology system that helps clean the air you breathe and the surfaces you touch. Aeros, the global leader in surface and air purification solutions, announced on September 30th, 2020 that independent test results of their hydroxyl blaster with active pure technology confirms that the product kills the SARS-CoV-2 virus on surfaces. The testing data established a 99.98% surface kill rate of live SARS-CoV-2 virus in only 7 hours over 300 square feet of space. SARS-CoV-2 is the known virus that causes COVID-19. During a pandemic such as we are currently living in, you cannot afford not to have this device in your home and or office. Order the Volera Air and Surface Active Pure system today at volera.com forward slash Odell Glenn PhD. Again, that's volera.com forward slash Odell Glenn PhD. Does your child have an interest in STEM? Is he or she always asking the why questions? With four engineering degrees behind him, Dr. Glenn can help you better navigate the process. Sign up on his website at www.ogstem.com for newsletters, his upcoming book, and webinars dedicated to STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. The key to success is to plan early. It's never too early to plan. Do you need a certain SAT score to get into the college of your choice? Well, Dr. Odell Glenn can help you get it. The three-tier foundation offers online SAT prep classes. Dr. Glenn will show you test strategies and tactics needed to get the score you want. The exam is beatable with the proper coach. We are open to working with individuals, schools, and groups for six-week online sessions. Sign up at www.3tierfoundation.com forward slash SAT dash preparation. That's www.3tierfoundation.com forward slash SAT dash preparation. 
Do you have that burning desire to educate, empower, and inspire community? We here at WDRB Media provide you with such wonderful opportunities to make such a positive impact. So step out on faith and make a significant difference with your gift. We care about your voice and the impact it has. Call 1-877-342-7770 and provide them with the code 1349 to begin the process. That's 1-877-342-7770 and code 1349. Hi, I'm Dr. Orlando Morris McCauley Jr., a candidate for Episcopal service in the AME Church. I'm the father of three young men and one daughter who are millennials. Their vision and concept of church is quite different than tradition. One of my visions as candidate for bishop is to find innovative ways for which millennials can exercise their gifts and share their vision, especially through technology. There are a few ways you can help the Macaulay for Bishop campaign by donating monetary gifts. You may do so by visiting our website at www.macaulayforbishop.com and clicking on the donation page on the menu. You may donate using the Cash App or the Givelify options. Your gift can make a huge difference in the life of the church. Find us on Facebook at Macaulay for Bishop 2020. Share our link, promote what we do, or find out how to volunteer. The Lord bless and keep you is my prayer. Well, welcome back, radio audience. We are here with Dr. Wendy and James Taylor, and I want them to introduce themselves. Could Wendy and James, could you guys introduce yourselves and tell you tell us where you're from and greet the audience, please? Absolutely. I'll start. This is Wendy Taylor, and currently we're living in the Atlanta metro area, more specifically north of Atlanta, Buford, Georgia. We've been there around 20 years. And both of us are, as you mentioned, educators and retired a few years ago and have continued to just work in the field of education. And I'm James Taylor. I usually go by Jim. And I pretty much say, echo what she's already said, born in, in South Carolina, attended the University of South Carolina. I am a military brat, so at an early age, I uh, spent a number of years in public education uh, overseas in, in Germany, spent additional time in the state of Washington, Fort Lewis, Washington. And then we came full circle, came back to the state of South Carolina, where I graduated from C.A. Johnson High School and had the honor of returning to my alma mater years later as the principal of that high school. So again, I'm excited to be here and look forward to this opportunity. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Taylors. And so audience, you know that I stress education and empowerment. And so we have two educators from both are graduates of the University of South Carolina, which I push nationally because it's an awesome university. And again, as I mentioned, they are here to talk about their book. Now, they wrote a book together on COVID-19 and the racism, and they tie that in with what's called the imperfect storm. And so, Dr. Taylors, any one of you, what motivated you to write the imperfect storm, racism and a pandemic collide in America? I'll take the lead with that. We learned a lot during the pandemic. I never heard of uh, social distancing. Everyone was shuttered in or sheltering in place. So while we were sheltering in place, this gave Wendy and I an opportunity to just do a lot of reflecting. We engaged in an awful lot of conversation and being educators, we reminisced a great deal about our years in public education. I uh, spent my public education, my perspective was in the 1960s and Wendy's perspective was in the, the 1970s. And we discussed the challenges that were presented to us in our society at that time related to being in school doing a separate and unequal society. Translated, we both attended segregated schools. So upon our reflections, something really happened while we were sheltering in place. There were three successive murders. The murder of Ahmaud Aubrey, the murder of Breonna Taylor, and lastly, the murder of George Floyd. And this sort of triggered a great awakening and made us realize that, wait a minute, have we gone full circle? Systemic racism is still very much alive in America. It has already been, it's always been there. There were just... It was just camouflaged a bit and we just didn't see it quite as much. So this prompted us to write this book to heighten 
everyone's level of awareness regarding areas where changes are desperately needed. And not only do we outline the areas where changes are needed, we offer solutions to the problems as well. So again, while sheltering in place, engaged in an awful lot of conversation and doing moments of reflection, uh, we had a great awakening and that prompted, prompted us to write this book. You know, that's very, very interesting because 2020, it was and still is like no other year. It, it really brought a lot of things onto the table with respect to the George Floyd case, as well as education in general. And so you hit it right on the nose. And I thank you so much for writing the book, because basically when you reflect and having gone through segregated systems yourself, and having the time just to reflect, then see before your very eyes what is going on with respect to racism and education here in America and seeing the world join hands with us. It's just ironic. Could you guys tell me what the Taylor model is and what it represents? The Taylor model and what it represents you know, in education, especially when it when it's speaking in terms of multicultural education, we hear lots of terms that sometimes are, tend to be interchangeable because people aren't quite clear what they mean. You know, you hear cultural competence, you hear about cultural responsive teaching strategies and just what these these approaches, competent teachers. And so not knowing what all of these mean and how it inter, intertwines, we came up with a framework just to kind of put it in perspective of a model. And so what that model really is, what it stresses is we, we actually put it in four Ps to make it easier, <laughs> process, product, pedagogy, and performance. When we speak of the process, we, we think in terms of the strategies that teachers actually use when teaching, culturally responsive teaching strategies. And when they use these strategies with children that are in diverse classes, which we have more of today than we had before, the result is that of a of a product, and that product is that of having competent teachers. Because when we have competent teachers, then we have better engagement with our with our students. And then after that, once the the, the leaders transform form these instructional practices, we create this pedagogy of teaching. So we have a process, which is the cultural responsive strategies. We have a product, which are our competent teachers teaching a pedagogy of multicultural approaches. And then with that in mind, our final you know, part of that framework is that of performance. We have schools that will perform much better at higher levels when all of these pieces are in, in, in working in tandem. And I, you know, my husband can yeah. probably jump into that, but that's that's basically the framework that we have. If I may add, if you don't mind. What prompted us when we looked at everything, we thought in terms of what is a great team? And in our book, we talk about the 1995-96 Chicago Bulls. They were generally considered the best basketball team of all time. And it's debatable. I'm not a big Bulls fan, but I, I certainly respect <laughs> <laughs> so it begs the question, did they have the best athletes during that time? That's debatable. But what they did and what separated them from everyone else is that they had competent players. Yes. All the teams would develop a strategy to defeat the Bulls. Yes. They would know how to engage that strategy and use it to their advantage. That was the essence of their success. They had a team of competent players. Likewise, in education, what we're saying is that if you have a competent faculty, Faculty. And if your faculty knows how to engage the multicultural <clears throat> students in their classes, because in the simplest sense, when a student is engaged, they're learning. When they're not engaged, they're not learning. So to the degree that we can train and teach our teachers how to engage the multicultural students in their classroom, and yes. we do this by training them to make them culturally competent, then everybody succeeds. Everybody yes. yes, it's so ironic that you guys have the Taylor model because the Census Bureau has projected by the year 2045, the USA will become a minority white nation. And so your model is perfect for teachers adapting to and implementing that in a multicultural buyer um, and a multicultural classroom based on, your, on that model. 
And so based on this, how optimistic should we be in hope of a more equality-based system over the current racism system society that we have in our educational system? I'll start by, by saying, to echo what you're saying, America is becoming browner and browner. That is a reality. Uh, to <clears throat> Taking a step further what you were saying, the data also indicates that by 2060, that the white population in America will decrease by 20 million. And the Hispanic population were virtually double. <clears throat> so change is coming. And by nature, people tend to be resistant to change. Uh, they usually respond uh, in fear, fight, flight, and sometimes frolic. And I, I, I know there's some alliteration there with all those Fs. Some, <laughs> like alliteration. Yeah. <laughs> some, some people welcome it and, and, and some people are fearful of it. But the good thing about it, when you talk about racism in America, um, our people in, in, intuitively, we can't paint our entire population with the same broad brush and say that Americans are racist. You really have to look at the institutions. And as we become browner and brown and the people that lead, that lead, uh, lead those institutions, their perspectives and their points of view can change. Just as you indicated earlier, people aren't born with hatred in their hearts. That's a learned behavior. Mm -hmm. Same thing with systemic racism. Americans aren't born with hatred in their heart. Those behaviors can change. And once those behaviors change, the systems will change as well. And I am optimistic that as this new generation of multicultural leaders, because as you've already indicated, very shortly, we're going to be a predominantly non-white society. So if you do the math, a lot of our leaders are going to be multicultural and biracial. So as this new generation of multicultural leaders is a emerging and they embrace diversity, they embrace inclusivity, equity, and equality. This provides hope for the future. I am optimistic that in the future, our future leaders are going to take this country to the next level. Thank you so much. And audience, if there are any educators out there who want to contact Dr. Taylor's you can contact them and have them come and speak at your function to educate your next group of educators. Dr. Wendy, can you tell us how students, people can reach you guys if they want you guys to come in to speak to their cohorts of groups on education leadership? Absolutely. We do have a website. It's www.tnteducationconsultants.com. TNT, that's for Taylor and Taylor. So www.tnteducationconsultants.com. That is the best way to reach us. Awesome. Awesome. And so I love your book. I read it backwards and forwards and <laughs> I was just underlining and highlighting various things. And one of, one of the things I really like about it is that you guys give a common sense idea and a research-based solution to begin the process of erasing racism in our society and it beginning in our schools. And so in your book, you explain the differences between equality and equity in educational systems. Can you explain to the audience what that means, equality sure. and equity? Yes, I'll be glad to. And, and you know, sometimes in education or just in general conversations, a lot of terms become popular terms, but they become so interchangeable, people really don't always understand what it really means. And equality and equity sometimes have been used interchangeably. But basically, the best way to look at it is that when you think in terms of equality, it just means that everybody gets the same thing. Everybody gets the same thing. And with equity, it's more about people getting what they need to support them. And I don't know if you or the audience have ever seen images of, of that being expressed, but there's one image that shows three, I guess it's three people, three students standing with a fence in front of them trying to see a baseball game, for example. One person is very tall. They can just stand there and look over the fence and see the game easily. Another one is a little girl. She's so short, she cannot see. And one is in a wheelchair. So to be equal, everybody gets a, a crate to stand on. Each person receives one, but that's equality. Equity, the person that's the tallest didn't need one at all because they can already see. Wow, wow. Mm -hmm. The little girl was so short, one crate didn't work. 
So she needed two to be able to see. And the person in the wheelchair doesn't even need a crate because they're in a wheelchair. They needed a ramp to be able to see. So the whole point of uh, of that image is that we can be have equality and give everybody the same thing, but for it to be equitable, we have to really focus in on what is needed to be successful. And particularly when we are in schools, everybody doesn't perform the same way. Everybody doesn't need the same things, but it's incumbent upon us as educators to figure out what is needed for each child. And that's what you know we need to do to um, ensure that our children are being successful in school. And so it's really interesting that you say that Dr. Taylor, because, you know, I run an SAT prep and, and basically the SAT has been stereotyped as bias, racist, culturally biased, but technically it's just a matter of having access to the correct mechanisms to do well on the SAT, regardless of which community that you live in. And some marginalized communities don't have the means to prep the students for that. And so that is a perfect example of equity and equality where not everyone has the same chair. Everyone is in school learning, but it's different levels depending on the community that you live in that can deter how well you do on that test. And, exactly. and so it's, it's really interesting that you've broken that down to the audience to let us see. And so audience, now that you have a framework of the of Dr. Taylor's, now I'm going to jump into the book. In chapter one, the book is, this chapter is entitled Public Education in America, A History of a Systemic Racism. And so the Taylor's go into the depth of the history of American racism. In chapter two, dealing with the cultural gap. And so they touched on it a little with respect to the different multicultural phases that we have. In chapter three, teacher prep, the the, the Taylor's has just gone over the different Taylor model that they presented and how teachership prep to adapt to those, those models. Chapter four, multicultural education. Again, as they as mentioned, we're living in a multicultural world and we have to best prepare ourselves for that. Chapter five, early childhood education which they're going to speak on in in a few. Chapter six, Obama versus Trump, two divergent federal agendas for public education. There was a major difference between the two administrations, and they're going to touch on that for us. Chapter seven, the collision and its impact in America. As we know, 2020, we will never be the same. We can't go back to the same way now that everything has been exposed. And then chapter eight, actions needed, which I like because they give very strategies and they have various models in which they can touch on a strategic plan to address racism in our society. Can you guys start off with the history of the Semitic racism? Take the audience through a short history so that we know where we've been and have a clear vision on where we need to go for our future. What we like to think is that our book takes the reader on a journey. And there's no saying that you don't know where you are unless you know where you've been. So if, if on this journey, we start in the past and let's say in the early 1860s. Um, in our past, racism, we had a separate society and that was the law. Our past was de jour. Race, uh, uh, segregation was the law. The Supreme Court had ruled in Plessy versus Ferguson that as long as facilities, uh, everyone has equal access to various facilities, you can segregate separate but equal. So during the Jim Crow era, because of de jure or legal segregation, there are some harsh systems and there are lots of barriers that Black children had to experience or face, especially in, in, in free public education. And those, some of those barriers were in, in terms of facility. We know the facilities were separate, but they were by no means equal. Funding was, was skewed. And for those of you who are familiar with public education, the funding really comes from the state and local government. Very little comes from the federal government. of it comes from the state and local government. And in states like South Carolina at that particular point in time, they would uh, allocate $53 for every white student and only five for every black student. Wow. Wow. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Books and materials were unequal. The quality of the teacher training was unequal. So we lived in a society where we had legal or de jure segregation. Now we look at today. We like to think that, okay, that is the past. Well, 
Here's an alert for all of you. We still have pockets of segregation in our school system, even today. So today we have what's called in certain areas of, of, of our society, de facto segregation. Some of our schools, primarily in our inner cities, our large uh, major school system, urban school system, remain segregated and they're inadequately funded. The, the primary source of funding comes from tax dollars and, and homeowners. And so, as you can probably surmise, in a lot of these huge urban cities, there the, the tax revenue is not as comparable to other systems that are in more suburban areas. So, separate but equal, we still have pockets of segregation in our schools today. So, again, that is something that we try to bring to the forefront to make our readers aware that a lot of what's going on today, while it's not as, as severe, it is pretty much the, uh, in many areas the same as it was in the early 1860s and 1960s. Wow, wow. And so, Dr. Taylor, you mentioned at the end of that chapter, you gave us a quote, education has enhanced my senses. It has allowed me to hear voices from the past, feel the winds of change in the present and see a true post-racial America in the future. You've given us a synopsis of that. Can you give us a summary on what that means? That's a famous quote that you wrote, James. I appreciate that. Yes, that that quote came to me. One, one of the things that this is a book based on fact and while conducting research, Research, I was reading about systemic racism, and especially during the time of the, the Black Wall Street massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921. I won't go into all of the details, but that was indeed a massacre, and it, it, it still impacts me when I think about it today. And while reading about that, I, I felt as if I could hear voices from the past encouraging us to write this book. And they wanted us to write this book to remove the curtains of, of racism that is hidden in America. That was one of the, the, the goals and objectives of this book. Let's remove the veils. Let's remove the camouflage. Let's take a look at what has happened in America's ugly past so that we can uh, make sure that it never happens again. Now, when I, in, in terms of my, my quote, you know, metaphor, metaphorically speaking, education is the ultimate stimulus or stimulant for our, our, our all of our senses. It allows us to touch, see, smell, hear, and taste things with greater, greater clarity. To me, education is the sixth sense that actually stimulates the other five. Wow, that's really, really interesting. And when we think about it, education does blend in with all of it. And sometimes it's not always, as you grow older, education is also outside of the class as well, in your community, in your family, and entities as well. And so it is a sense. And I think we all have become educated over this past year. Now, now that we have a broad spectrum, let's go into the teacher preparation and so, Dr. Wandy Taylor, you mentioned a quote on page 66 on cha in chapter three, and it goes, what you know matters, but what you do with what you know matters more. Can you elaborate on that? Certainly. Yes. You know, my, my dissertation actually was focused on researching teachers, and I, I did a research study with teachers that <clears throat> were in a high poverty, highly culturally diverse setting which actually happened to be the school that I was the principal of at the time. And so during this research, I think teachers learned a lot about themselves because part of what happened was that of them receiving workshops on culturally competent, the culturally responsive teaching strategies and, and, and developing their cultural competence through becoming more and more aware of their own biases, implicit and explicit biases. But as we talk about in this chapter, preparing teachers for this multicultural world that we are finding ourselves in, then what they are learning does matter. And just gaining information and, and learning and developing knowledge and skills for yourself should not stop there because it's all about once you've done that, what do you do with it? Wow. And so trying to make sure that when teachers are really immersed in learning how to teach, part of that has to be internalized to the point that it's not just a subject and a box to check off, but it's taking that to that next level 
of what are you going to do and to really process what they are learning in a meaningful way. Because even as a principal, when I would speak to my teachers, a lot of times I would say, you have to go beyond teaching the subject. You yes. have to teach the child. Yes. You have the difference. And particularly, I think it's all throughout K-12. However, it is critical when you're speaking about children at this, at the elementary, primary and elementary ages. So that that's that's the the impetus with with my quote. And and I and I want to throw it because I know you like quotes like I do. Because well. <laughs> <laughs> I've listened to your podcast and you're running like, like, like in a heartbeat. <laughs> so but one from Maya Angelo also says, do your best until you know better. Yes. Then when you know better, do better. Yes. And that is simple, but it's powerful, but it really it makes you realize that. A lot of times we're not always doing what we should be doing. So it's it, we've got to go beyond just talking the talk. We have to actually walk the walk. We have to do it. So that's right. that's what I meant by that. Right. It's really interesting that you say because K through 12 are the years that shape the child, especially the younger ages. And when you mentioned you have to speak to the child as well, that means you have to adapt to the learning mechanisms that make them learn, not the one that's standard for everyone. And that that's really important. And so, Dr. Taylor's with us moving into this multicultural education type of world that you mentioned in chapter four, why do you think there are still more representations of one race of teachers in our public schools than there are other races? You know, I'm just going to give an example. You know, I teach um, engineering at the University of South Carolina. Most of the time when the students come to me, I'm the first black male professor that they've ever experienced. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, where is the foundation of that? Why are Black males not seen in leadership roles that shape and, and, and mold that? And, and what changes can we do to solve to solve this? Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to start, and, 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 and Wendy is going to kind of finish it up. I'm going to speak from the perspective of a Black male, because what you said is so very, very powerful. Research indicates that... If a student, particularly a black male, during the first three years of school, if a black boy between really between the, the, the grades of third and fifth grade who has at least one black teacher, let me repeat that. During the first, uh, excuse me, during grades three through five, if a black boy has at least one black teacher, there's a 29% increase in their interest in college and a 39% decrease in their likelihood of dropping out of school. It makes a huge difference. And this, the implications are, are, are pretty clear. You find a lot of black kids, this is uh, evidence-based data, comes from the U.S. Department of every Education every year that young black males are more disproportionately suspended from school for misbehaving than any other subgroup in schools. And a lot of that can be attributed to the fact that they don't have access or exposure to at least one black male teacher. That is a huge problem that school systems in K-12 public education need to address. I'm going to let Wendy elaborate a little bit, but since, since I'm the black male at this table... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> There's nothing masculine about her, but I felt like I needed to, to respond to that. No, and, and that is and that is so powerful. And and with you, Dr. Glenn, having that personal experience, you understand how real this is. Yes. And so when I so when we think about why, why, why is this? Why are there 82 percent of the teachers in America are white? That's research based. And of those, 76 percent of those are female, English speaking, middle class. So you think about that's the majority of the teachers in America. But yet over over 50 percent of, of the students in public schools are students of color. So this is part of even when I was doing my dissertation and we were doing our research, this is what's created a culture gap. You know, it is not just race based. It is cultures. And so it's as we talked before, when students are engaged, they are learning when they are not engaged, they are not learning. So if there is this disconnect because it's not the ability of the teacher to be able to reach our students 
This is where we lose so, so many of them. Now, going back a little bit historically, as I was thinking about why, what happened to all of our Black teachers? I was in a book signing yesterday, and I was reflecting with my classmates we were one of the first classes to integrate. And this was in 70. That's just how long it took. And when when those schools were merged into one, many of the Black teachers were gone. Many of the Black teachers just disappeared. Mm. And that was across all of the South, probably gradually throughout this nation, because when integration was finally just really forced, I mean, even though Board, <laughs> Brown versus Board of Education was in 1954, in my hometown, it took another 16 years before it was actually done. And so with that, you had a lot of resistance to parents wanting their children taught by Black teachers at that time. And then you had these standards that were set as far as what teachers had to meet based on state criteria. And so many Black teachers were just fired, let go. And that divide has remained for many, many years. I think it was in 1996, 87% of all teachers were white now is 82. So it's not changing very much. And so when we talk about what can we do, though, we, we really do have to be aggressive in the recruitment. But one thing that's telling with teachers uh, teaching is that the, of the wage gap. Many, yeah. many, many, many people just do not find teaching as as a profession that, you know, is, is first of all, elevated to the level of other professionals in, in terms of salaries and in terms of respect of the profession itself. So a lot of Black males are not going into the profession or at least not staying in it. My son, he, w- he was a teacher for a very short time and he's like, I cannot feed a family off a teacher salary. So right. he essentially went into administration, but you know, it, it is a challenge and we, we really have to, I think, be aggressive in trying to recruit, better recruiting. And then with the ones that we do have in place, we have to do better at training. And that's why we had a good segment of the book focused on teacher preparation and multicultural you know, um, education, because with sitting in your classrooms today are students of color, and we have to be able to figure out how to engage them and start where they are. Yes, yes. And speaking of that, how do the audience grab a copy of your book? Where can they find your book to purchase? Well, the, the simplest way, again, is to go to our website, which again is, you can Google Taylor and Taylor Education Consultants. That's us. That's the company's name. But the website is www.t, and that's A-N-D, T and T Education Consultants. But you can also go to Amazon. You can also go to Barnes and Noble online and you can receive the book from there as well. Awesome. Awesome. So, guys, we have gotten a foundation from chapters one through four on the public education, the history, where we are and what we have in front of us in terms of multicultural education. After this short commercial break, we will come back and discuss what 2020 did and the exposure that it now has brought through chapters six through eight of the book entitled The Perfect Storm, Racism and a Pandemic Collide in America. After this short commercial break. Are you a full-time caregiver for a loved one with a terminal illness? Do you feel overwhelmed at times? Do you often feel as if there is no hope? Well, with over 12 years of caregiving experience for two parents alone, in addition to writing a dissertation, fulfilling ministerial obligations, working home-based businesses, and radio personality responsibilities, Dr. Odell Glenn has found the time and has had the energy to write a book to inspire and empower other caregivers. Purchase his book entitled Caregiving, the Inspirational Manual on his website at www.ogcaregiving.com and you can also book him to come and speak at your next event, function, or club. Again, the website is www.ogcaregiving.com. In need of a motivational speaker for your upcoming event? Dr. Glenn speaks at school graduations, public gatherings, colleges, and universities. In addition, he is a national radio personality as well as published author. Have him speak at your next in-person or online event at 3tierfoundation at gmail.com. That's the number 3tierfoundation at gmail.com. 
Does your child have an interest in STEM? Is he or she always asking the why questions? With four engineering degrees behind him, Dr. Glenn can help you better navigate the process. Sign up on his website at www.ogstem.com for newsletters, his upcoming book, and webinars dedicated to STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. The key to success is to plan early. It's never too early to plan. Do you need a certain SAT score to get into the college of your choice? Well, Dr. Odell Glenn can help you get it. The three-tier foundation offers online SAT prep classes. Dr. Glenn will show you test strategies and tactics needed to get the score you want. The exam is beatable with the proper coach. We are open to working with individuals, schools, and groups for six-week online sessions. Sign up at www.3tierfoundation.com forward slash SAT dash preparation. That's www.3tierfoundation.com forward slash SAT dash preparation. Do you have that burning desire to educate, empower, and inspire community? We here at WDRB Media provide you with such wonderful opportunities to make such a positive impact. So step out on faith and make a significant difference with your gift. We care about your voice and the impact it has. Call 1-877-342-7770 and provide them with the code 1349 to begin the process. That's 1-877-342-7770 and code 1349. Well, welcome back, radio audience. This is Dr. Odell Glenn with Dr. Wandy and James Taylor talking about the book, The Imperfect Storm, Racism and a Pandemic Collide in America. And so we're going to jump right into it. We had what was called a pandemic collide. Could you talk about what the pandemic collide represents? What it represents, uh, I like what you said back earlier, and we, we mentioned it in the book. This happened in 2020. Mm-hmm. If I can indulge you a bit, prior to that, uh, America did not have 2020 vision. There was right. a lot going on that we didn't see. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with the murder of George Floyd during a pandemic, it was like everyone became clear-eyed. They could see things that they that were there, but they could see it more clearly in 2020 after that. It was like, okay, there was a, an, a global reaction to George Floyd's murder. It was as if to say, wait a minute, systemic racism has been here. There have, there have been gaps and inequities in most of, well, all of the, the major institutions in America. We could see that there have been gaps in housing. We could see that there have been gaps in healthcare. There have been gaps in education, employment, and the criminal justice system. So during that pandemic, while people were shuttered or sheltering in place and had pretty much their thoughts and their minds uh, dominated their being every day. You could see that racism was very much alive and the collision occurred during a pandemic with the with the murder of George Floyd. Wow, wow, interesting. And so you guys hit it right in the noise when you kicked it off with chapter six, Obama versus Trump, two divergent federal agendas for public education. Dr. Wendy Taylor, can you elaborate on that? <laughs> yes. So, you know, the old thing goes, follow the money and you will determine where your priorities are. <laughs> so, 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 so even before uh, Trump was elected, he, he expressed a desire to eliminate even the Department of Education and eliminate all the federal funding for public education. It was very clear, even by his choice of Secretary of Education, someone who had never been involved in public education, whose children had never attended a public school ever. So, you know, we put our money, we put our priorities, what matters most. And so public education did not seem to matter that much because the Trump administration really focused a lot on private, private privatizing public education, which is, is very dangerous because then you deplete all the funding from public schools and it goes to private schools. And so it would, it would virtually destroy that. Whereas Obama, his was the exact opposite. And in fact, I am passionate, very passionate about the need for early childhood education. So we really need to be investing on our youngest children. And Obama wanted to fund pre-kindergarten and extend after-school programs, doing those things like we 
talked about equity, it's what's needed to be successful. And, and so universal pre-K, charter schools with themes, those are the kinds of things that he advocated for, that we advocate for. And there's a saying that the first five years of a child's life can determine the next 80. Yes, yes. And mm-hmm. so pre-kindergarten, early childhood, you know, as their brains are developing, mm-hmm. it is crucial and critical that we invest in that. In fact, for every dollar spent in on a child on the front end in pre-K, you earn $7 on the other side. That's yeah. the investment. That is the cost benefit analysis mm-hmm. for investing in early childhood. So I'm passionate, very passionate about that. And I'm hopeful that's the direction that we will reach turn to as as we have this new administration in 2021. Yes. And interesting that you said that I was just listening to a advertisement yesterday that the new administration pushed that same statistic that the preschool preparation today paves the way for more college graduates later on. And so that is very, very interesting. And so chapter seven is the collision and the impact on America. And you mentioned that our most vulnerable students have been hit hardest by disruptions caused by the COVID-19 virus that appears to prey on the disadvantage. And so there was a study that showed that it seemed as if more minority-based groups were getting the COVID virus and suffering from the causes of their virus. And so that's a whole nother subject on the medical disadvantages that marginalized communities have. But what can you say about the COVID-19, how the Pacific COVID-19 had on the educational system with respect to those in rural areas not receiving, not having laptop assistance or being able to study online? How has the digital divide enhanced itself through COVID? And what can we do now moving forward to address those needs? Yes, definitely. As as Jim said earlier, one thing, and that's why we call this a collision. Once this COVID hit, there were so many things that were revealed. A lot of this had been around. We just didn't see it. It was hidden. It was underneath the surface. So I think when, when COVID hit and suddenly teachers and schools had to pivot from in-person instruction to online instruction, that was that was <laughs> chaotic to say the least for, for some, some areas. It wasn't as easy to do. Many school systems did not even have the infrastructure set up for that to even occur. And as they are, what I term, trying to fly the plane at the same time they're building the plane, there was a lot lost in all of this transition. And it definitely exposed the fact that there were many students who did not have computers at home, who did not have access. And though some school systems were able to provide it, you know, in a response to that, still, as you said, there, there are areas that did not even, and still do not have internet connections. In fact, in, in some counties, some of the things that were they were doing to mitigate some of that, your local libraries were providing Wi-Fi. So parents would drive up to, to their local libraries just to connect to Wi-Fi. Some schools, even though the students weren't in school, you would go to the parking lots to be able to connect Wi-Fi. It became cumbersome and nearly impossible for many students, particularly those that are in your high poverty, high risk areas because their parents were the essential workers. They had to go to work. So many of these students were fending for themselves at home. And more than likely, if they're more than one child in the home, which for many, you have two, three, four, five students in one home trying to share computers and laptops and doing the best that they can. So we know that it did not become the best way to instruct. So we know that. And as a result, there was a lot of learning loss occurring. So now I think schools and school systems and educators are in a kind of catch-up mode, trying to figure out how to regain control. Of course, everyone is trying to get back in person because that's the most effective way. But what it has taught us is a lesson in how we have to remain innovative in school. I don't think online learning will now go away right. because that has also become for some a preference in, in, yeah. in you know for some from for some students for some families. 
So what is, you know, we, we have to learn from this experience. And, and I think that a lot of school systems are beginning to do that. Right. That's awesome. Yeah. Online learning is not going to go away. It's going to continue to propel what is we are now addressing issues that make it equal for all people so that we can continue on the progress of learning online as well as in person. And so this pandemic brought on the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, then went on to the murder of Breonna Taylor, and then the murder of Joy Floyd in the midst of students having challenges of not learning through online and people becoming unemployed. And so with all of that, Dr. Taylors, I want to throw this question in. What do you think the mental health professionals or how mentally disempowering was it for students who are really young to see all this happening right before their very eyes? I know you guys have grandchildren on your own. And how have you taught or what should educators do to help students force their way through all of this to become healthy children and healthy adults? I know that's kind of a two-part question, but kind of want to know what your opinion on that is. I'll start off with that one. When you talk about kids, uh, kids are social beings. You know, mm-hmm. Psychology books tell you almost immediately with kids, there's a need to affiliate. They, they need to be around other people, particularly other kids. And they're at a very impressionable age. Uh, Let me just share something with you very briefly, and then we'll elaborate a bit. My granddaughter will be four years old in August. Mm -hmm. We were looking at television the other day and just jogging memory a bit. This was when the congresswoman in Georgia uh, was uh, banging on the the governor's door, and she wanted to go in to see them uh, sign the bill that he he, he signed. uh, What was that bill? The new new laws. Yeah, the voting voting laws. Mm -hmm. And while she was knocking on the door, there were two police officers stationed there and they arrested her and they grabbed her and they removed from the state capitol. Lo and behold, our four-year-old, well, three and a half-year-old granddaughter <laughs> saw that. Mm. And every time she saw a policeman on television yes. or even in person, that's, that image was in her head. Wow. Like, wow. Oh, that's the police. He, 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 he hurt her. He hurt her. He hurt her. And we had to sit and explain to her that was just an isolated incident. All police officers aren't bad. And we're still wrestling with that. You know, once it gets embedded and imprinted, it's hard to deal with. And it's real. So a lot of the kids are being isolated now. They have been separated from their support system, their teachers, their friends, and it has impacted their mental health. Even before that, the suicide rate among teenagers was increasing. So that even complicates matters. So this is one of those situations where our advice to parents is just as you take a lot of pride in your child's physical health, that mental health is just as important. Right. Uh, you may not be able to see the mental health. Sometimes I like to use the example of, of a balloon. You take a balloon and you blow air into the balloon. You can't see it. But the more you blow into that balloon, it expands. That's what's happening with our kids. You can't see it, but it's there. And unless there is a release valve, that balloon is going to pop. So to that end, what we have to do is that we have to provide more opportunities for our kids to affiliate with others. We need to listen to them and we need to nurture them more. Yes. I I would just add also as far as schools and school systems, one of the responses that we're beginning to see a lot more of is that of involving and including social emotional learning as a part of their ongoing instruction and valuing that perspective a little bit more than they did in the past. There are more school systems hiring more psychologists and more counselors, and they're really looking at and really understanding that there has been an impact on the emotional of uh, the emotion of children during a lot of this pandemic. So we, we really have to respond to it. And we may not even know the real outcome of it all. And you couple that with, you know, just online, you know, kids these days do so much social 
they're, they're, they're social beings. So now even on, online, there's so much social communication online and it, it lends itself to cyberbullying and all of these things. So it is very critical that we don't take our eyes off the fact that just as we concerned ourselves with their physical well-being, that their emotional and mental well-being is just as critical. Very, very interesting. And so audience, if you're an educator out there, if you're a teacher, principal, If you are a parent that wants to know more and learn more, if you're a homeschool parent or that's homeschooling a child, you want to go out and get this book called The Imperfect Storm, Racism and a Pandemic Collide in America. For those that are out there, educators that are doing grassroots efforts in your community to address the issues parent-teacher association on the school grounds that are addressing these issues I empower you to continue the work that you're doing because there are so many issues that have surfaced because of the pandemic. Not to say that they were not there before, but they are now exposed. And now we are learning as we move into this new era of education, how to best teach teachers and how to best practices. Dr. Taylor, have you, um, are you guys open to going into colleges and universities? I'm actually kind of a what next type of question because this it needs to be taught to up and coming teachers. Absolutely. We are very okay. open to that. <laughs> and okay. in fact, a lot of what we are doing is targeting uh, colleges and universities because we believe that education, that, that institution has to be somewhat what guides us through all of the others. You know, we have to start with education, yes. Yes, and so can you leave your information in case there's a principal or educator out there who didn't hear the address, how they can contact you for those opportunities? Absolutely. Again, our website is www.tnt, that's A-N-D, that's how it's spelled, T-N-T, educationconsultants.com, www.tnteducationconsultants.com. You can reach us through our website. There's a contact form. There is a phone number and that is uh, you can email us at any point in time. And finally, in chapter eight, you summarize actions needed. You give the audience a strategic plan to address racism in school. And so you start off on page 225 with a problem acknowledge causes identified the best practices, the starting points determined. And then the emergency declared strategic plan developed, managed plan, implemented plan, and the monitor plan. Dr. Taylor, could you just give us a synopsis on what has been done and what is needed to be done as we move forward? Because I think that plan really sums up what we have and what we need to continue and where we should be at at certain points. We appreciate the question. One thing, and I'll focus on public education, but the plan can be applied to virtually any institution. And and what most institutions ascribe for is to become what's known as receiving a triple A rating. Everybody wants a triple A rating. So Mm. we're going to use that as our our framework. Uh, If we take our nine steps, we can actually collapse them into three categories and they all begin with the letter A. Uh, The first part of it is awareness. What you want to do is you want to make sure you can see, hear, smell, feel, or touch a real problem. The problem has to be tangible and that it it exists in your organization. Typically, others will make you aware that the problem exists. So you have to have this level of awareness. And after you become aware of it, you you can transition into the next category, which is acknowledge. It's one thing to say that it exists and unless you acknowledge it, you can't move forward. So in the next category, you acknowledge the problem exists. You have to declare that it is serious, it's measurable, and it's serious. So we're going to declare it's an emergency. It's worth our attention. We need to resolve it. So again, the first thing you have to aware, be aware that it exists. It it appeals to your senses. You can see it, touch it. It's there. It's tangible. And others also are aware that the problem exists. And second phase is that you have to acknowledge that it exists. It's serious, so much so that you declare an emergency, so much so that you declare that it is a priority that we address this measurable problem. And the third A is action. You can't move into action until you acknowledge, you are aware and acknowledge. And then once you get to the action phase, you have to develop a plan with measurable goals. And 
You have to be transparent with this plan. Typically, you post it on your website for public viewing. You implement it with fidelity. You use evidence-based strategies. You just don't sit there and say, oh, maybe this will work or maybe this won't work. (laughs) No, you have evidence-based strategies and as part of your transparency and fidelity, you have community members help monitor and the implementation of the of, of the plan. And as part of your fidelity and your transparency, you provide annual or quarterly updates to the community. In a nutshell, if you want to receive a AAA rating, you become A, aware, the first A, aware that the problem exists. Step two, you acknowledge that the problem exists. And finally, you take action. That's your AAA rating. Wow. Wow. And so if you're a nonprofit out there that specializes in education, if you're a school district, you want to implement the Taylor model and they have laid it out in the book, the, the Imperfect Storm, Racism and a Pandemic Collide in America. Chapter eight gives you the total plan. And so audience, time always goes by fast when you're having fun. But I just want to inform you that Dr. Wendy Taylor and Dr. James Taylor are actually related to me. We're cousins. And so they have done an awesome job explaining their textbook. And so Dr. Wendy, we've come from a legacy of great parents, great grandparents, and really humble beginnings. Wendy, your mother, who is my aunt and my father, who is your uncle, were the youngest of nine children in the South in a small town called Ward, South Carolina, where according to the latest Census Bureau, the population is only 91. (laughs) And so 85 years and several children, grandchildren and great grandchildren and great, great grandchildren and great, great, great. We are the seeds of such heroic legacy. What advice can you give to families out there on reflection on core family values and reflecting back on humble surroundings? Wow. Yes, that that is that is very nice that you actually connected our relationship and our parents because truly it is that they have come from humble beginnings and so many of us have. But the advice that I would like to share is that never compromise your values. Always acknowledge realities. Always put forth your best effort in anything that you do. And of course, trust in the word of our Lord and Savior. That has been the foundation, pillars of success for, I think, our family. And that would be the advice that I would give to anyone. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And Jack, Dr. James Taylor, can you give final words to the audience on basically the synopsis of the book and just empowering communities as well as empowering educators? Sure. I'd be delighted to. Um, Just a synopsis of the book is that with the murder of George Floyd during a pandemic in 2020, it revealed all of the imperfections, many of the imperfections in our society. And as a nation and as a, and globally, people became clear-eyed and realize that we're not as great as we are. There are certain imperfections. And until and unless we address these imperfections, they're going to continue to fester and they're going to continue to interfere with the greatness of our country. I can take it a step further, the greatness of our universe. Mm -hmm. So what we're saying is that what we wanted to do was to heighten people's level of awareness. These exist. If you're in denial we're not going to make any progress. Going back to that AAA. We, the, the goal of the book was to make you aware. Now that you are aware, acknowledge that it exists. If you don't acknowledge, you can't move into the final phase, which is action. And I'm optimistic that with this rising generation of multicultural leaders, we're going to have action. We're going to have decisive action. And we're going to have a better United States and a better place to live in. Amen. Uh, Amen. Thank you so much, Dr. Taylor, for this wonderful, wonderful interview. I'm sure someone out there has been inspired and encouraged and will help make change through your motto. And so let us end off with prayer. God, we thank you for this opportunity to become educated on the Taylor model. Now, God, we actually would bless our United States of America school district that as we move forward towards changes, that they would be in the correct direction that you would have. Lord, bless our online and our offline 
And Lord, help our students to become better models of your greatness and your awesomeness. Lord, we ask to actually that you would touch each educator under the sound of my voice and help them through the process. We thank you. Amen and amen. And so this is all the time we have for the OG Inspiration Show. It has been a pleasure to interview Dr. Wendy Taylor as well as Dr. James Taylor. And we wish you many, many blessings and awesome success. Well, guys, we pray that you have an awesome week this week. And until next week, this is Dr. Odell Glenn of the OG Inspiration Show signing off.